This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca. And make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. So I was here last year, I can't remember exactly which month. I, I do remember having a fantastic conversation with most people. Who, who have I talked to before here? Is it like about half, half of everyone here or two or three people? I just, what, what I talked about last year. Closer to your mouth. Okay. I always have fun when I come here with microphones. Um, thank you. So when I came here last time, it was a year ago, and I introduced myself. I'm Nick Taylor. I'm, I, I talk about myself as a basic income advocate. I, I work with a group, a, sm- a fairly small group here called Basic Income Vancouver. Um, we meet once a month, and we talk about basic income, and we try to talk to other people about basic income. It's, it's pretty straightforward. And we've been doing, doing that for over a year now. And when I came when I came here, I was I was introducing a couple of concepts. One of which was that there's a very defined definition of basic income, and I'm just going to read that out. It's a basic income is a periodic cash payment unconditionally delivered to all on an individual basis without means test or work requirement. And this is a definition that's been been promoted by the Basic Income Earth Network. There's a Basic Income Canada Network. There's a Basic Income Vancouver. There's a basic income in Victoria. There's little basic income groups all over the place, generally using this same definition of basic income. And so I thought, what am I going to talk to you guys about this time? So, so we're here. We're, we're a year later. We, we talked about basic income. Lots of great questions. And I thought, I want to come back. I want to talk to you guys because you have the most amazing questions and the most fantastic way of looking things. And, and people are so well read that I will get away with very little talking to you guys. So I wanted to talk about the different motivations for basic income. And I, and I had a piece prepared. And then, and then last night, I read an article in, in the Huffington Post. And it summed up pretty much what I was going to talk about, which is kind of frustrating, because that was written a day ago. But the quote in there I thought was really useful. It says, governments may like UBI because it's the sword that can cut through the messy Gordian knot of their welfare systems. And so what we see is we see now we have a pilot in Finland. Are we good? Can you hear me? Yep. Still a bit quiet. You have to hold the mic this way. Unfortunately, it's uncomfortable for the arm, but that's the way. Okay. Uh, Speak louder. That too. too. Okay. Your fault is the system. I sometimes my fault. And directly in front of your mouth. I'm glad this has only been recorded for the podcast and not videoed, so that's good. (laughs) We want to hear you, but you you sort of. I would like I would like you to hear me too. So. (laughs) Because I feel like I'm out of bed this morning to talk to you guys. So we're here. We've got. 
and load of things happening that weren't happening last year. Last, last year, the message was, hey, there's the basic income. It's kind of interesting. Think, things, things are starting to happen. What we've seen in the last year, Finland announced they were going to have a, a, a pilot, and they're actually running it. They've in, in, they, they picked 2,000 people from the population that's receiving income assistance in Finland, from Kila, their, 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 their welfare agency. And they said, you, you 2,000 people are now going to be paid a basic income. And they started paying these people a basic income in January. And there's, there's, there's pieces on the, on the internet you can read. There's interviews with real people receiving basic income in Finland. So that's happening. In Ontario, they are looking at a pilot. And Hugh Segal, an ex-conservative senator, was tasked by their premier with writing a discussion paper. And the discussion paper came out September time last year. It's kind of interesting. It says, we recommend, I don't know who the we is, that a negative income tax pilot be trialed because everybody else is trying basic income. And so as an as a advocate reading that, you get that. OK, that's a strange argument. but. But we're now looking at a pilot in Ontario that's been called basic income that's trialing negative income tax. And I'll talk a little bit about negative income tax shortly. Then we've also got PEI who've been looking at Ontario and saying, hey, these guys seem to have got some money. And so every single one of the political parties in, in PEI has come together and they're going to go to the federal government. That, that's the motion they pass in their legislature and ask for money to investigate basic income. And then, and then it gets kind of a little bit different, because that's, that's, that's the government money. And there's, there's, about, there's about, I think, $20 million worth of cash floating around for all those, all those different pilots. Down in, down in San Francisco, the tech folk there are taking matters into their own hands. So there's a guy from Y Combinator, Sam Altman. They've managed to somehow get $10 million worth of funding for a group which they're calling the Economic Security Project. And this, this seems, as far as we can tell, very much connected to the trial that was proposed in Oakland. So the, the latest we're seeing is that's about you know, a couple of thousand dollars for a couple of hundred people. And, and, and the tech community wants to run some trials and pilots around that. And then last month, we hear from San Francisco. San Francisco, the city, has just put aside $5 million to, to run a basic income trial. And at that point, my, my ears started to prick up because this is, yeah, this is adding up to serious money now for for what people are calling basic income. So we're, we're sat here in Vancouver. We're seeing, we're seeing this stuff happening out here on, I guess if the map's probably this way for you guys, on the East Coast and coming out of, coming out of some of the conversations in Europe and the conversation in Ontario and the conversation in PEI and folk trying to get their head around how the definition of basic income is being co-opted to some extent by different, different, different folk. And then all the way down the West Coast, there's a very different conversation about basic income happening. And we're here in Vancouver. And 
some of the conversations are starting to start here. We've got Andrew Weaver with the Green Party um, saying, I think it's a good idea. What do you think? That seems to be the extent of that conversation so far. And we've got a small group called Basic Income Vancouver looking at this. There's, a, there's another group called Life, Livable Income for Everyone. And then there's lots of private groups of people talking to basic income as best, as best we can tell. There's a, a lot of interest in basic income. So, so we're, we're here sat with Basic Income Vancouver and the five guiding principles I talked about when I came here last year, we've, we've, we've kept to. And, I'm, and I'll, I'll just go over that because the, the number of people that said they were here last year was quite small relative to the rest of the room. The first principle we're looking at for a basic in income policy is does it help the least secure first? If it's, if it's not helping the people that most need help with, with income, it's probably not targeted right. So, so we, talk, we talk about does it help the least secure? The second principle is one of paternalism and whether the basic income policy lets people spend that money how they think best to suit their needs. The third principle is, is a rights not charity argument, which says that basic income is not a charity, it's a right, it's a, it's, it's a right that comes from the right to existence, and it's, it's a right that actually has a cost in a market economy, and that should be reflected. The fourth piece is one of, does it impact the ecology and the environment. If this is if this is a policy that's paid for in some way that does not help us all, it affects the environment, or it's paid out of out of um, use of the commons, then we'd probably be looking at and going, is that really worth it? Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. And the fifth and final principle was one of choice of work. If 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 a basic income payment comes attached to work conditions or it comes attached to you've got to do this in terms, in terms of receiving it, then that is equally not particularly helpful. So I think that pretty much gets me up to speed with, with kind of what I said last time, although it took me about 45 minutes to get there. The conversation amongst advocates and activists like most things, has a spectrum. And one of those spectrums I want to talk about today is, is a complicated one which looks at negative income tax, which I just said is the, is the model being explored in Ontario, and the demigrant. One of the interesting things about living now is the ease with which information is shared. So in December 2016, pretty much all the technical reports from the Dauphin experiment in Manitoba in the 1970s were put on a web, web page. So if you, if you want to go, you can, you, can, you can take a look at them. They're, they're all there, all super interesting. Negative income tax says, if we pay you, where we pick that number to be, $20,000, we can do that in one or two ways. We can give everybody $20,000. That's the demigrant. And you look at that and go, that's quite expensive. How are you going to do that? The other way is to say, well, actually, we'll claw it back. We'll give you $20,000, but you'll pay it back to us with your, in, in your tax return at the end of the year. It's not really $20,000. Don't spend it all at once. 
you might need to pay it back to us um, come come the beginning of the sorry the end of the tax year. So yeah, so there's there's a number of problems with that. The biggest problem I could see was the fact that what really happens is you have the you have Canada revenue that says, okay, Joe, you owe, you, 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 your income last year is $10,000. That's great. Then you have to have some sort of MinCom authority. And in, and in Dauphin in the 1970s, it was the, it was, um, the, Ma the Manitoba MinCom agency. <coughs> and they, they have a really, really awful job because what they've got to do is they've got to take this annual assessment of your of your tax and your income, and they've got to somehow decide how much of that they're going to pay you every single month. And there's a few design, design decisions there as to how that happens. But the most likely, and then we have to see what comes out of Ontario, but the most likely, and what actually happened last time around, is you've got to do a monthly income certification. And so, so some people around this table are probably saying that's that's fine. You know, I get I get the same amount of money every every two weeks. I, I work for I work for a company, not a big deal. I'll do that. But for the people that most need something like basic income, so I, I keep dropping this. And, and maybe if it's at the back, if you just wave, so you can't hear me, that'd be awesome. You you you, for, you end up forcing people that have got very precarious incomes to make a monthly statement of of their income before they can receive income. And I would say this is a, I would say it's a very conceptual argument, except that one of the Dauphin reports is about 80 pages long, explaining just how complicated this was to do in practice. You, 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 either, you either don't get it quite right so people don't get enough money, or you, get it, you don't get it quite right and people get too much money and they're paying it back. Either way, people have to make this, this monthly certifi uh, certification of their income. And I got interested in this because one of the, one of the papers I read was talking about the opt-out and the attrition rates from the Dauphin study. And I thought, well, this is interesting. I've, 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 not, I've, not, heard about, I've not heard about opt-outs and attrition rates. And the paper went on to say that the opt-out rates this is, this is the people that are receiving basic income, getting their free money, as people like to call it, saying, I don't really want this money. This is too much hassle. And so there's an interesting story there. So these are, these are folk get, having to do a, a monthly certification, and they're saying this is, this is a lot of hassle. And it was so bad in the Dauphin experiment that for data purposes, they had to create a new population. So they had to recruit more people into the Dauphin study because people were opting out in, in numbers that were too high. And so I look at this and I, I think <coughs> negative income is a challenge. It's, it's, it, was, it was trial in the 1970s. We've clearly got a lot of, a lot of information about it. It presents a lot of problems for people. But then on the other hand, the, the idea of the demigrant, where you pay everyone $20,000, struggles with a really massive problem of it just being too expensive for basic income to work. And people, you know, you can, you can add those numbers up and it becomes a significant chunk of our GDP. And you say that that's a little bit difficult to justify. So that's kind of where the conversation was a few months ago. And then 
And then the news came out of San Francisco about the municipal basic income. And this, this takes basic income back to some very early roots. A lot of people, if you've been reading about basic income, you'll see people refer to Thomas Paine, the kind of post-French revolution, the kind of think that, that thinking, people, people, people refer to that and say, here's a basis for, for, uh, for, for basic income. At the same time as Thomas Paine, there was another guy called Thomas Spence, and he was talking about municipal basic income. So it's, it's, it's interesting to come full circle sometimes. Um, now, that, now that San Francisco is talking about that. And so it creates a space for people to start thinking about what that kind of basic income might look like and, 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 get, and getting beyond this, this conversation of negative income tax versus demigrant and saying, what does, what does a basic income at a local level start to look like? And there, there's two very, very interesting problems. They're, they're kind of related. One of which is housing. How many people think housing's our election issue? Is it? Is it? Is it not? Is it? Yeah. Just show of hands. Is it the election issue? Yeah. Um, certainly in Vancouver, we're very, very well aware how expensive housing is compared to other places. And this has been. This has been a challenge for people talking about basic income who talk about basic income as a fixed sum of money for all Canadians. But if you start talking about basic income as something that's municipal, then you can start to make the connection between the cost of housing and what basic income looks like. At the same time, we've been working with the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition. They do absolutely amazing work. And one of the I wish they could. My hearing's pretty good. Um, the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition is now talking about the market basket measure, and this is this is this is an, this is an interesting shift in in poverty advocacy. Prior to this, people were talking in terms of two numbers: the low income cutoff and the low income measure, which attempts to say, you know, twenty thousand dollars or twenty-one thousand dollars is a poverty line. Statistics Canada has always steered well clear of this conversation, saying like this is not a poverty line, this is the low income cutoff. But what the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition is, is focusing on now is the market basket measure. And this Sorry, is just ma market basket measure. Basket. basket, basket. Yeah. So you take a basket of the things you need for to live uh, includes shelter, includes um, transportation, includes food, and it includes other. And people do the do this calculation. It's it's run it's run by I can't remember the agency federally. And PHSA here the um, has put together the numbers for food. There's there's a, there's there's a lot of people thinking about it. The number for Vancouver comes out about actually comes out about eighteen thousand dollars, eighteen thousand two hundred sixty-one dollars, and that is based on about twelve hundred dollars rent, um, depending on the size of the family. It's based on using transit to get around, 
and it's based on a certain assumption about a nutritious food basket. And so it's, it's an interesting way of looking at this question of what is enough, rather than saying, do you have enough income? It's, it's like, let's, let's look at the cost of living in this particular market and, and come to agreement what that looks like. So what that tells us is that housing is a really critical, really critical component. And so there's been, there's been some work on this. We've got Andy Lamb here. I don't know if people have been following his work. He's, he's been talking about the cost of housing. He's, he's, he's recently come out and said that the $1 million line, which has been progressing eastward across Vancouver, is now somewhere east of boundary. And so there's, there's no houses in Vancouver that you can buy for under a million dollars, or 99.7% of houses are over a million dollars. So he's been doing work here. But in, in the US, there was, there's, a, there's a couple called Ed Glazer and Joe Gioco. And they, they did a really interesting piece recently, which looked at various different cities in the US. And they said, barring most differences, the cost of a house in the US anywhere should be about $200,000. Whatever maths they did, they, they come up to that conclusion. They say certain areas, maybe it's a little bit more complicated, you know, seismic costs and so on. So, on. so perhaps in, 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 in San Francisco, it would be 281000 But on average, it's, uh, the cost of a house anywhere in the U.S. should be $200,000. Yet the cost of a house in San Francisco, the average house, is $800,000. And so they, they talk about this need for capital to have cities for people to move to them, um, and then those cities becoming too expensive to be, for people to actually work there. So there's a, there's a problem that people have in trying to provide these places for people to collect and work and, and live together that ends up with them being too expensive. And for the first time, I saw this quote, which I, I thought, hmm, that's interesting for basic income, which was, they concluded fiscal resources will be needed to convince local residents to bear the costs arising from new development. Oh, that's, 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 that's curious. That ties in with the kind of municipal basic income argument. It's saying that if you want people to live in a city and to pay, pay, pay these costs of, of rent and, 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 and to take on board the costs of capital investment that we see in places like Vancouver and San Francisco and well, pretty much all the coastal cities, then you've got to start being quite imaginative as to how you make that work. And this, this follows on a little bit from the discussion last time I came here last year, which is something's going to happen. The drivers and the pressures are such that they, they're pushing towards concepts like basic income. I'm, I'm not worried about basic income not happening. I think it is going to happen. I'm more worried about what kind of basic income is going to happen. And that's why I come out and I talk to folks like you guys, because we have an influence in that. The other aspect of housing is the bottom end of the market. If, you, if you're living in an SRO, you're not going to pay much less than $400 for a single resident occupancy dwelling. In Vancouver, your disability rate would be 610, and you're paying $400 of that out of out of your disability rate. 
So anywhere in the spectrum of the housing market in Vancouver, folk are paying a huge chunk of their income on their accommodation. The, the, the number, the 410 come from raise the rates. These, these, these are folk doing really, really great work in, in just trying to convince the province that not raising the disability rates for the last 10 years has been a really terrible decision. So they, they're working on that, and they're sharing numbers like $400 and $610. And I, and I like where that, that all brings us to. It brings us to a point where we can say basic income is something that we can start considering at a city level, and we can, we can think about what that looks like. It's, it's something that we can also work together with a lot of organizations. One of, the, one of the strange things when I first started getting involved with this is I saw some of the conversations that were happening out east. And I saw the conversations with groups like the Ontario Co Coalition Against Poverty. And basic income seems to fit in a difficult place because there's, there's folk that have been working on, on these issues for years and years and years and years and making progress step by step very, very painfully. <coughs> and basic income, at least for some proponents, is seen as a mechanism to replace welfare. And that's pretty scary. You, you, once, you start, once you start talking to people, you're talking, you're talking about changing and changing their income, changing where the housing comes from, changing things. That's, that's scary for everybody. And I don't think it's necessary. I, I think that basic income can be seen as a way of raising the floor. If, if all basic income is doing is providing $50 to everybody in, say, Vancouver, that's better than nothing. If it's providing an, another 100, that's, that raises the floor even further. On top of that, you would have EI, you would have your welfare and everything else. Bringing up the bottom doesn't seem to be too painful. I, I don't think there's many people who say, no, I don't want another 50 books, or I don't want another 100 books. And then we can discuss what that number really looks like. I feel like it gets me to a place where people start asking how you would do that. And there's also been a lot of interesting developments last, over the last year in how that might look. One of the, who's heard of Bitcoin? Like everyone's heard of Bitcoin, kind of. The, the technology that makes Bitcoin happen is, is a technology called blockchain. And blockchain is a completely public ledger of all transactions made um, with, with currencies like Bitcoin. It means that if I if I pay you one bitcoin, you can go you can go on the internet and you can see that I've made this transaction with with somebody else. And so there's an organisation called Grantcoin. They're on the east coast. They're, they're they're operating out of Washington D.C. and they're super ambitious. They said they want to pay everybody in the world a basic income. And so they're using blockchain and they're using um, cell cell phone. I can give you their details. No, you... no, no. I want them to send me that money. Yeah. 
I got two dollars sixty-seven cents. Hey, that's more than I've got. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so you can sign up. You, you give them the email address. They they ask for a photo, which is a little bit creepy, but you have to give them a photo, and they ask for your telephone number, so they can give you one of those six-digit codes, which you then tell them back what that is, and then and then you're signed up for a basic income scheme. What I think is interesting about that is not the amount. As I, as I said, it, it works out like two dollars sixty-seven if if you can find someone to buy the currency they're issuing it in, but it's it's a proof of concept of how you you can pipe this. So the the, the folk down in, in Silicon Valley are looking at basic income not from the funding sides, uh, uh, which is part of what they're looking at, but they're also looking at it from the infrastructure side. And this is this is one question. So, you know, as as, a, as an engineer, I look at that and say, great, you know, there's a there's a technology there, and there's a proof of concept out out of out of Washington that says we can pay people a basic income. Um, the question is how we how we fund that. Funding, I think, is where we, as a society, start to have some interesting conversations about basic income. And Ben yeah. is here today. Hi. Hello. We, I didn't introduce. Ben's got much more of an interest in some of the technological technological job replacement. Um, and hopefully when we get into the Q&A afterwards, we can, we can talk a little bit about that. But one of the things that's been talked a lot about in basic income conversations is the effect, the disruptive effects of technological job replacement. And there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a few examples of that. One, one, of the, one of the ones that's being imagined at the moment is, is the consequences of autonomous vehicles. And so, as an example, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward to imagine what happens to the taxi fleet in, in a place like Vancouver. Sorry, I just drifted away from the microphone. A taxi license, I think last time one came up, cost something like, I think it was $743,000 for a taxi license. I think that's, as I read it, it's, it, it, it's not an annual thing. You buy it, it's, it's, yours, for, it's yours for as long as you, you hold it. And then you get people to drive your cab, and you make, and you, and you hopefully make money. So as soon as you start getting to the place where twenty thousand dollar box can be dropped into a vehicle and turn that into an autonomous vehicle and drive around Vancouver, which, depending who you talk to, is either very close or very very far away. But um, I guess we'll we'll know shortly. Oh, and it never gets tired. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it never get tired. It never takes a break. It doesn't need vacation. Don't have to pay it, in, like it insurance for employee dental. employment insurance. Nothing. <laughs> Pension. Yeah. CPP deductions. Yeah. Less than one driver's wage a year, and you have it all the time. So I ask myself, what jobs are you going to get out of that? Because the story, the story we've had for the last three hundred years, isn't you know the jobs disappear and and there's no jobs and we're all sitting around drinking tea and having a lovely fine time. It's that what would likely happen, I imagine, is you get cabs that drive around on their own. Fantastic, you've got some sort of app, they turn up, it's, it's a great system, everyone loves it. These cabs, I guess, drive into service stations where a whole load of people clean the cab you know, once every 24 hours or once every two hours or whatever that is. You've got folk cleaning cabs 
and you've got folk programming the code and the apps. And so this, this picture of, of jobs becoming more precarious and better paid on the, on, the, on the other side would seem to play out quite logically with something like um, autonomous vehicles. And we're not particularly close to cabs as far as I can tell, but there's a startup just been launched that claims to have a box or a box and a lot of wires that would cost $30,000 and can be dropped into any big rig. So that changes, that changes the dynamics of the intercontinental. What do you, I don't understand what you're talking about. Sorry, what's this box that you're talking about? A computer. A computer, okay. A computer. A GPS digital driver. All right. Yeah. So I would take whatever big truck is out there, I would put this box in, I'd hook all the wires in, I guess there'd be something that turns the steering wheel. I can only imagine what it looks like. Yeah, the, the, they, the, the, piece, the piece was talking about that costing $30,000. And that replaces a truck driver. So these, these are things that are not very far away, apparently. And, and so I think that brings us, as a society, back to a conversation we've probably been having for a very long time, which is since our economy bears the costs of this disruption, how do we help people deal with the personal disruption to their lives? And that's, you know, that's, that's a political conversation for folk to have, um, but it's also potentially the source for some of the funding for something like a basic income. I think that's probably where we need to start thinking about basic income, um, both both as something that's municipal and as a response for a very, very high level of job disruption that's anticipated. The current number, I mean the current is from 2013, but the current number is that... It's yeah. 47% of jobs are at risk of replacement in the next 10 to 20 years. This, so the, 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 folk, the, folk, the AI folk at Oxford, best I can tell, they, they sat down in a room and they looked at the, like, they looked at the likelihood. They, they pulled all the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics from the US and they said of all the, of all the jobs in the US, and there's, there's, there's a great listing of exactly what each job requires from, the, from, from, the, from that bureau, and they categorize each one of those jobs as to the likelihood that job could be replaced by AI. And that's their conclusion, was 47% of all jobs can be replaced. Um, some of them can be replaced right now. And so there's, there's, there's mm -hmm. and so we have these two groups of people. We have, we have a government group of people, Finland, Ontario, PI remains to be seen exactly what they're looking at, who are looking at this saying, this is a way to deal with this horrendous mess of welfare that we've got, and we can just swap that out and replace it with a, with a dollar number. And then we have a group of people, predominantly from the West Coast, saying, we're doing some really scary things which are going to take all your jobs. 
And I can't quite decide what their motivation is because it's not really very obvious. It's either, it's either we see this and we're engineers and scientists and basic income looks like a fantastic solution and we can make it work. Or they're really worried about the pitchforks because they, 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 they could end up being like the next bankers um, taking everybody's jobs. And I think that's, I don't quite understand their motivation. So, coming towards the end of what I, what I wanted to share with you, you, you folk, but I'm very certain we're going to be hearing more about basic income. I, w I was pretty certain last year. I have been very, very surprised about how quickly things have moved along, and that, that's only reinforced my, my, my belief that the, these are conversations that we need to have, and we need to have very quickly about how we deal with things like job replacement and disruption, and how we support people with not necessarily, we don't have to talk about his basic income, but we should be talking about unconditional cash payments um, because that's, that's, that's where things need to shift to. There's, there's clearly going to be a struggle for the definition of basic income. The, I, think, I think it's a fairly straightforward conversation. There's, there's, a, there's a definition that's been developed by a group of people over the last 30 years, and they've been talking about basic income for the longest time. But as with most of these things, it's, 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 it, becomes a, it becomes a question of what really is basic income, and people try and shift the definition. And so that's why the core principles of payment individually, universality, and without conditions are really important to look for. And when, when, when people start talking about this, if you're looking at something that's called basic income and it's, it's implying conditions, then, then there's somewhat of a challenge. The, the interesting thing about the Finnish experiment is that they completely dodged that question. They, they, they took 2,000 of the existing welfare recipients and they said, you're now getting basic income. So they completely dodged the question of eligibility for the program by using people that have already been determined to be eligible. And so that, that doesn't help very much with the conversation. And so we'll be watching Ontario very carefully as to how they assess the eligibility, and they're talking about both a saturation site, and they're talking about a random, randomised selection of folk in, in Ontario. If it's negative income tax, I personally don't really see what that adds to the conversation. There was there was a lot of really good work done in the in the seventies, not just in Dauphin, but uh, in in another four test sites across the U.S. and so. I'm personally looking to see what's different about this study and, um, and pointing out this question of the, of the monthly adjustment that has to be made and the monthly certifications of income. Because I think if we're seeing something that requires people to file monthly certification of income, that can't, that can't be a good thing. I talked about the tech interest and, and hopefully I also talked about how this question of negative income tax versus the demigrant, we can move on from that. We can move on to looking at basic income at a local level. We can look at, we don't have to see basic income as a replacement for welfare. That's, that's one way of phrasing the problem, but basic income, there's no necessity for basic income to replace welfare. It can be supplemental. Um, it, can lift, it can lift the floor. 
And from a perspective, a perspective of humanists, I think the perspective that basic income is a human right is one that I'd like to engage with, either in the Q&A or hopefully I, when, when, when folk go off and have a coffee. As, as somebody living in a market economy, there's quite evidently to me a cost to doing that. And if we don't provide people that income to meet that cost, whether it barely meets it or it's sufficient to meet it, then I, then I think we do people a disservice. Um, we don't acknowledge their right to, to exist in that, in, that, in that context. And so, you know, with, with ending on that point as, as, a, as a place where I, I think I, I feel like I probably share a similar perspective to, to most humanists, I'd like to open to questions. <laughs>